A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until... You deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now as we uh, seek to think about and consider your word from the gospel of Luke and to uh, Put ourselves, Father, maybe in the place of the disciples, receiving these words from the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, the night prior to his crucifixion. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to recognize our own need for grace, for help, for strength to endure such trials in our own lives. We need you. We need you now to open our our ears, open our eyes, give us understanding in your word this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as uh, Pastor Ron mentioned in his prayer, uh, today marks the 21st anniversary of when our nation was attacked by Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda terrorists who hijacked four commercial airplanes loaded with people, people who are traveling to different destinations for work or to see family or just returning home and flew those airplanes into the two World Trade Center towers in New York City, uh, into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and then one plane which didn't make its intended destination because of the bravery of the passengers on board who took over the plane and crashed it into a field in Pennsylvania. 
what I remember about that day is how all of a sudden, in just a span of a few hours, this great sense of fear and sorrow just came over our country, even in Des Moines, Iowa, where I was at the time. Thousands of, of families, especially on the East Coast, were thrown into a time of immense suffering, and they were not prepared for that experience. No one was prepared for that day. Not, not one, but, but two of the tallest skyscrapers in New York City, filled with people working in their offices, came crashing down in a matter of hours. And then all of that debris from uh, the, the quick destruction of those buildings filled up the air. Thousands of New Yorkers are still suffering, and many have died from respiratory failure or lung cancer in the years since, breathing in that air polluted with the tiny shards of glass and steel and other chemical debris that came from those buildings. For those of you who are alive and aware of what was going on 21 years ago, you know that September 11th really got our attention. Suffering always comes as a surprise to us. And that may be why throughout the Gospel of Luke, we have found Jesus regularly preparing his disciples for suffering. Over and over again, Jesus would bring it up in his teaching, or he'd just tell his disciples directly. And here in Luke 22, they are just hours away from facing the greatest trial of their lives so far, and Jesus is preparing them for it. But we also see that just like us, these disciples aren't ready for what's coming. Just like us, they, they have no idea what lies just around the corner for them. Just what tomorrow will bring for them. They, they definitely are not expecting to suffer like they will. And when it comes, it will take them all by surprise. There are two main things that this passage is trying to show us. First, that, that suffering is inevitable for us. And second, we see how much we need Jesus. We see how much we need Jesus because of the trials that are to come. So the main theme then, trials that we are ill-equipped to handle will come. They will come, but... We have an advocate who will keep our faith from failing. Trials that we are ill-equipped to handle will come, but we have an advocate who will keep our faith from failing. That's what we see here in these verses. So it, it might seem like there is not much unity between these four different paragraphs, uh, but in actuality they're all pointing to the same theme of the coming trials that the disciples are about to endure and how ill-prepared they are for them. So first, we'll look through this passage and, and see Jesus warns the disciples of the trials to come. He warns the disciples of the trials to come. As I mentioned, Jesus had been doing this kind of thing before for the disciples. They had heard him give warnings of the suffering that he would have to endure in Jerusalem and what it would cost them to continue to follow him. But the disciples are a lot like us. They're a lot like us. They're a lot like you and I. 
they could be a little slow, a little slow learners and poor listeners. Um, I know that that describes myself uh, at various times, probably also you. We, we are a little slow sometimes, and we are often poor listeners. And we're also shown, once again, the remarkable patience and kindness and love of Jesus as he interacts with his disciples here, particularly in his response to their debate uh, in verses 24 through 27. And I want you to look at verse 28. Uh, This helps us to see the main point of this entire passage. This also reveals another uh, definition uh, of just what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, or what you and I would call a Christian. Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. A Christian is someone who is with Jesus. As these disciples were with Jesus at the table for the Passover meal, these disciples have been with Jesus since he called them to follow him. They have remained with him. And now here they are on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and they are still with Jesus. But just because someone is is with Jesus at a certain point in time doesn't necessarily make them a Christian. A Christian is someone who stays with Jesus. Not just when things are going well, but stays with Jesus in the trials. As Jesus says this, he is acknowledging that it has not been easy for them to stay with him. They have been challenged. They have faced pressure accusations and challenges for following Jesus, particularly uh, from the main religious leaders of the time. Here Jesus is, is commending them for their faithfulness and loyalty. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. But the greatest trials were still yet to come, as Jesus shows them in the rest of this passage. Now look at verse 31. Here, Jesus shows his disciples and us that Satan is much closer than we think he is. And his intentions are to have us. To have us. To to destroy our faith. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. One thing that isn't clear in the English translation of of this verse is that both of the times where the Lord uses you in this verse, they are both plural pronouns in the original language. So Jesus was, was in effect saying to to Simon, Simon, uh, Satan demanded to have all of you, to have you all that he might sift you all like wheat. Satan was after the whole group of them, all the disciples. His desire was to shake them up, to break them up, to destroy their faith. And he demanded this of God. For Satan is an accuser. Satan challenged God that these men had no right to be given such privileged 
status as to be friends of the Son of God. They were sinners. They were prideful. They were selfish. They had unclean lips and impure hearts. Satan was after them to destroy them, and he is after all those who know and follow Jesus, who are with Jesus. And his wicked goal is to shake up our faith, separate us from from the Lord and from each other. He wants to divide us, and he is closer than we think he is. We also see here in verse 34 that temptations to sin are also closer than we think they are. Jesus warns Peter of this here, verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, Peter loved the Lord. He was committed to following Jesus. He had left his home, family. He had left his family's work in order to be a disciple of Jesus. He had stayed with Jesus in his trials thus far. And I'm sure Peter truly believed that there could be no circumstance that he'd ever go through which would lead him to forsake his Lord. But he didn't know what was about to happen. He didn't realize how strong the temptation would be, the temptation to lie about his relationship with Jesus. That temptation was much closer than Peter realized. And he was about to be surprised at how easily he would fall into that sin, into denying the Lord. And that is how it is with you and I. Temptations to sin hit us when we are least expecting it. When we plan our day, we aren't thinking at all about the temptations to sin that we might face in the day ahead. And even if we we do think about it, we just assume, whatever it is, we'll be able to handle it. No problem for us. Jesus warns Peter here, uh, let it be a warning to us as well as we see this. Temptation is always much closer than we think it is. So let us prepare ourselves for it. Let us, let us humble ourselves. Let us seek the Lord's help. Let us cry out to God for protection, for wisdom, for help. Take time to dwell on the word of the Lord, which will help you to recognize temptation when it comes, and to be reminded of how deadly and disastrous sin is, so that you will flee from it and overcome it in the strength that the Lord will provide. And next, look at verses 35 through 37 here. Here the Lord Jesus is alerting the disciples of a change that will come due to his crucifixion. Uh, How they are viewed within society will be very different after the events of Good Friday take place. Verse 35, he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. In other words, we were welcomed by others. We were provided for by others. Others took care of us. Others were were, were friendly with us. We didn't lack anything. We were provided for by the people in these villages that welcomed us in. Verse 36, he said to them, but now, something's changed, or something will change. But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, 
that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. But what is written about me has its fulfillment. And we tend to get too focused on the details here in these verses, especially about the swords. Uh, but all of Jesus is doing here with his disciples is warning them that after his crucifixion, things are going to change in this culture, in this society. Things are going to change. After tomorrow, Jesus will be considered a condemned criminal. He was about to be numbered with the transgressors. That is, Jesus will become known as a transgressor himself, condemned by the, the religious leaders of Israel, condemned by Rome, the empire. He will be one who is someone that you don't want to be known to be with. He will be someone that upstanding, law-abiding citizens will not want to be associated with. So when the, when the, the disciples went out before, and people heard that they were coming in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that, that miracle worker who was healing people of their diseases, casting out demons, they were welcomed in. Now, when they go out and they are known to be associated with Jesus, the crucified one, they won't be so welcomed. Things are about to change. They'll need to be much more careful. Now they will be considered the bad guys. And that's something that we are dealing with more and more in our society today, isn't it? I mean, here in America, not that long ago, to be a minister of the gospel, to be known as a faithful church-going Christian was something that was respected by the general public. You were looked up to by your neighbors. You were someone people trusted. And now in many parts of our nation, you are considered one of the bad guys. Currently, our own national government, even in the highest office in our land, in the White House, they're openly saying that people like us are dangerous, that we are extremists. They're saying if you believe what the Bible says about Jesus as the one and only Savior, if you believe what the Bible says that it condemns sexual immorality, or that abortion is murder, then you are not someone who is good for our country, but you are someone who is propagating hate speech and the denial of basic human rights. And I don't see that sentiment improving anytime soon. For the disciples then and for us today, we need to get used to being unwelcome in our own society and serving the Lord obeying the Lord in a place and amongst a nation that looks down upon us and does not want to be associated with us. So how did the disciples respond to these warnings that Jesus was giving them in these verses? Well, the disciples show their inadequacy to handle the trials. They reveal their inadequacy to deal with these things. Uh, we see how un 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 unprepared they are right away in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be, be regarded as the greatest. 
Here they were in the very presence of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They had just participated in the Passover meal, which pointed to Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb who must be killed for the people to be saved, which was about to take place. Then they had the great privilege of being the recipients of the bread and the cup as the Lord introduced the new meal of remembrance that his new covenant people would celebrate, remembering his willing sacrifice on their behalf, giving himself for them, his body and his blood, so that they could live as God's people. And here they are, they get into this heated debate about which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom. Which one would would get the best seat at the table in the kingdom? Which one of them would sit at the right hand of King Jesus in the kingdom? Which, which, which Jesus here was serving them. They were thinking about how much they deserve to be served, how much they themselves deserved to be honored. Now, I love what the J.C. Ryle um, wrote about this. Uh, J.C. Ryle serving um, his church in England back in the 1800s. And, of course, we need to remember that, that the Ryle was English. And so imagine uh, this being spoken by a man with a very proper you know, English accent. He says, The ordinance which the disciples had just been receiving and the circumstances under which they were assembled made the strife peculiarly unseemly. Peculiarly unseemly. A more contemporary Bible scholar, David Garland, had an, an equally impressive comment about what was taking place here in verse 24. He said, One cannot think of a more inappropriate time for the disciples to bicker over who is the greatest. And then he wrote something even, even more insightful that I want to share. Uh, Garland said, The deadly sin of the heathen, the lust for fame and glory, rears its ugly head at the Last Supper. The disciples were showing themselves to be just like the world rather than as members of the coming kingdom of God. The sin of pride and selfish ambition was rearing its ugly head in the hearts of these men as they were about to face the trial of their lives. Their minds and hearts were full of themselves. Oh, how unprepared they were for what was about to take place. And then Luke shows us Peter's self-confidence when, when Jesus warned him about Satan's desire to destroy his faith. Look at verse 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, I don't believe Peter was lying to Jesus here. Peter really believed what he was saying. He couldn't imagine a circumstance so bad that, he, uh, that, that would lead him to be denying his Lord. At that time, he believed that if he were faced with the choice of remaining faithful to Jesus or being arrested and imprisoned, he'd willingly suffer in prison for Christ. He'd willingly do that. Or... He even took that a step further. He, he, if, if remaining faithful to Jesus for, for Peter meant you know, laying down his life, giving up his life, dying for Jesus, he would do it. He would do it. 
At this point, Peter was confessing Jesus was greater than life to him. He really believed. He was ready for whatever test would come. Whatever trial I need to go through, I am ready. But as the Lord told him, in fact, it would just be a matter of a few hours. And Peter would deny, not once, not twice, but three different times that he even knew Jesus. You see, the bigger that we imagine ourselves to be, the easier we'll fall. And finally, in verse 38, the disciples, in response to what Jesus said about selling their cloak and buying a sword, uh, they self-confidently announced to Jesus that, well, they indeed had two swords on them. This was not, of course, that unusual of a thing. They, they had been traveling, you know, to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, traveling, and that day was a dangerous thing to do. Uh, they didn't have the, the highway state patrol you know, on, on the roads to, to, to call if they were attacked, if they were robbed, if they ran into some trouble. So men often carried swords for protection. So they, they, they confidently announced to Jesus, hey, we, we got two swords. We'll be all right. We'll be safe. We're going to be fine, Jesus. We have these two swords. And Jesus' response to that confidence is basically to say, enough, guys, enough. Forget about the swords. It's not about the swords. They're, they're not going to keep you from trouble, from the trouble that is ahead. They definitely won't, won't wear enough to keep Jesus from being arrested and crucified. This is just another example of the disciples showing how unprepared they were to face these trials. Their confidence was in the wrong place. They showed in verses 24 through, through 27 here that their confidence was in their own greatness, their own greatness and the hope of being served by others. Peter showed that he was looking to his own strength to overcome temptation and Satan's attacks against him. And then after Jesus warns them of how the public reception of them was going to change drastically, they look around and find that they have a couple of swords between them and they think that's all they'll need. As long as they're armed with a couple of swords, they'll be just fine. So brothers and sisters, let us learn once again from what our Lord is seeking to teach us. Our sin nature has so affected how we view ourselves. Sin has such an effect on us that it's kind of like, you know, one of those fun houses with those magic, you know, mirrors uh, that, that, that make you look taller or wider or smaller than you really are. It makes everything appear to be out of proportion. And our sin nature blinds us, deceives us from seeing our weaknesses and deceives us into thinking that we are far stronger than we really are. Lastly, we must look away from ourselves and trust our Savior Jesus. This is what we need. This is what this is showing us. We must look away from ourselves and trust our Savior Jesus. It, it bothers us. It bothers us when we are not recognized for our accomplishments. It really bothers us when we do acts of service for others and then we aren't honored or recognized by others for it. And that's definitely one way that our enemy uses to turn our hearts away from the Lord and others and sift us like wheat, separating us from each other and from the Lord. Jesus confronts that self-righteousness in the disciples. 
in response to their debate about which one of them was the greatest? Yes. The great question that humbles them there in verse 27. Look at verse 27. He says, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Who is the greater? Who is the greater person? Maybe a different question for us would be, which would you prefer to be? Which would you prefer to be? The one reclining at the table? Enjoying being served by others? Or the one doing the serving? For each of us, the answer would definitely be, oh yeah, the one being served. The one being served is who I'd rather be than the one having to do the serving. I've never heard anybody complain about having to sit at the table and be served. Unless the service is slow or the service is not quite up to their, their taste, you know. But they've, they've, they've never complained, oh, I wish I was, I was the one doing the serving instead of sitting here. But I have heard a lot of people complain about doing the serving. That's, that's, that's who we are. That's who we are. But Jesus points out, I am among you as the one who serves. The Son of God was about to serve them and all of his people by laying down his life on the cross, putting the needs of others ahead of himself, willingly enduring the awful suffering of God's wrath against all sin and unrighteousness so that we wouldn't have to go through that. We wouldn't do that. We, we, we couldn't do that, but, but Jesus did it. Jesus was showing us how much we need him, how much we need his spirit in us. We need his power, we need his strength, we need his love, and his life throwing, flowing through us, or we'll just continue to live our lives for our own glory, believing we have what it takes to be great without him which will lead us right to hell like the worldly leaders who are only out there pursuing their own glory and stepping on using others to get there. In verses 28 through 30, Jesus tells the disciples that the only way that they will receive the kingdom is through him. They need him to be in the kingdom. They will need him to be welcomed to the table to be included they won't make it there on their own. They won't receive eternal life or blessings unless they are with Jesus. They won't be given such a privilege unless they are trusting in Jesus to provide it for them. In verse 32, um, you know, this, this verse may not be, or it actually may be the most encouraging verse in this whole section. Verse 32, uh, as J.C. Ryle put it, this verse, this is the one great secret of a believer's perseverance in the faith. We have an advocate who will stay with us when we need him the most, even when we don't think we need him. But I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan is closer than we think he is. 
demanding to have us, temptations to sin, and to turn away from Christ are closer than we think they are, maybe even just a few hours away from our having uh, spent a wonderfully blessed time with Jesus. We, 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 we may find ourselves scared to death like, like Peter was and cursing ourselves and others who identify us as a Christian. We, we of course, deserve to just be left behind and, and forgotten about, but instead we see what Jesus does here for us. We see Jesus prays for us. We have an advocate in heaven who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. This is the amazing miracle of the grace of God. Even when we don't think we need him, even if we think we can do just fine uh, without him, even when we have ignored his warnings and disobeyed his commands, if we belong to Christ by faith, he's praying for us. He will be protecting us. He will be interceding on our behalf so that we are not lost. Jesus was willing to do all that it took in order to save us and to keep us. He was willing to be numbered with the transgressors and to be crucified as a criminal so that we would not have to face God's wrath and condemnation for our sin. And he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. And as Hebrews 7.25 puts it, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So my friend, are you someone who has drawn near to Christ in faith? Have you put your trust in Christ Jesus to save you, to save you from the condemnation that you know your sins deserve? Christianity is, is not a, a self-made religion. It's not a religion that, 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 that points to the self and says, you have what it takes in you. You have what you need in you. It's not that at all. As the great songwriter Rich Mullins sang, I believe what I believe, that is the doctrine of the gospel, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. It's not from us. It's not about us. It is all about Christ and what the scriptures tell us about him. We will not be saved if we look to ourselves and depend upon anything that we think we are or anything that we think we can do. It is all looking to and trusting in Christ. That is Christianity. That is the gospel. That is how to survive. He is the one who redeems us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who will transform us. He is the one who will give us the kingdom. We must be with him. We must be with him or we won't get anywhere. Now you may be in the midst of trials right now, trials that you were not expecting, but they've come upon you anyway. Trials that you didn't plan for, but here they are. 
Maybe you've been in the midst of these trials for quite some time now, and you're not sure if, if things will ever change. And it can be very discouraging, very disheartening. And brothers and sisters, it is in those times, especially where you must look away from yourself and look to Christ. When you look at yourself, do you know what you'll see? You'll see someone who is not smart enough, someone who is not strong enough, someone who isn't skilled enough, who isn't mature enough to be the spouse that you need to be, to be the parent that, you, that your kids need, need you to be, to be the leader that those under you need to be, to be the man or the woman that you need to be. So look away from yourself then. Look away and look to Christ. And you will see one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. You'll see one who prays for you that your faith may not fail. You'll see one who has promised that he will be with you and who will never forsake you. When you look to Christ, you will see the Savior you need. And that will convince you, I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be with him in my trials. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would truly help us by your spirit to give us a heart that desires to be with Christ. To be with Christ, to be looking to Christ and looking away from ourselves and to have him. To have him interceding for us, to have him protecting us, to have him saving us from our sins giving us the strength that we need, the grace that we need day by day to work through the trials. We ask this grace to give, be given to us through his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.